Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. I'm so glad that we are immortalizing our friendship before we meet. This is the weirdest friendship I've ever had. By a lot. So <laughs> great, but good. weird, which I think is a, a good description of both of us. Yes. As both as individuals and as a unit. Agreed. So we are very lucky to um, uh, So we are very lucky today <laughs> to have Don't laugh at me. This is the humor episode. There's no laughing allowed. There's no laughing. No jokes are made today. Jeez. <laughs> Gentlemen, no fighting. This is the war room. Exactly. This week, we are lucky enough to have a special guest, Dr. Chloe Angel, who is a senior front page editor for The Huffington Post, a facilitator for the Op-Ed Project. She has her PhD in romantic comedies. That's technically what you got it in, right? Yes. It's definitely not media studies. It's just purely rom-coms. Romantic comedies. I'm so glad we have an expert on that. Um, And is a, like, literal friend of the podcast. You and I became friends because of this podcast. Yes, our friendship is pretty much the only good thing to come out of the election in November. Yep. I, I've i read studies that say that this is the only good thing that came out of it. So I'm glad there's something, though. We're such optimists. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering, just because I have you here, can you do the work for me? We see in this chapter, obviously, Professor Lupin with teaching the kids the ridiculous charm is teaching them how to use humor in the face of scary things. But yeah, basically do my job for me. Where do you see the parallel <laughs> between the way that you told your story and the theme of humor in this chapter? Well, what really struck me rereading this chapter, actually re-listening to it because I really love the Jim Dale audiobooks, 
What really struck me was that what Professor Lupin says is that you must force the boggart into a form that you, the student, find amusing. It's not about making everyone around you laugh. It's about making that moment about you and what you find funny, which is why when I was thinking about what it was about this sort of list of rejoinders that you can throw at the body police. It's not about making a fool out of that person or sort of getting everyone to laugh at them. It's about taking that moment for you. Because the point of sort of body shaming or bullying or a bogart is to make you feel bad. And it's an opportunity to flip it into a moment that makes you feel good, regardless of what anyone else thinks. Which is why one of the things my mother also used to tell me is she'd just tell me insults in Spanish. My mum learned Spanish for work and I don't speak Spanish, but she would teach me insults in Spanish so that she knew what they meant and I knew what they meant. But the person bullying me didn't and none of my friends knew. It was just that was a moment for me to say something awful about them in a language that they didn't understand. Which is something I try not to do to trolls. I try not to directly insult them. Making jokes for my pleasure is sort of more ethical than just straight up insulting someone. But that moment in the classroom is not about making everyone else around you laugh at the bogart, although that might be an indirect result. It's about that moment between you and that thing that scares you and finding something in that moment for you to laugh at and feel good about. I had never thought of that, but that's absolutely true. I mean... Lupin teaches Neville to picture Snape in his grandmother's clothes, not just in girls' clothes. And that will add part of the ridiculousness and the humor for Neville. I mean, the brilliance and awfulness of a Bogart is that it is so specific in how it plays on an individual person's fears, right? I mean, yes, it is micro-marketing. That thing is targeted directly (laughs) at you. (laughs) Everyone else in that room is intimidated by Professor Snape, but Neville is the only one who goes to complete pieces when, when he's even in the presence of Snape, not even in his classroom, but just in his presence. Well, in that moment at the very end, when Lupin steps in and allows the Bogart to turn into a silvery orb, so one of the students at the very end says, why is Professor Lupin... I wonder why he's afraid of a crystal ball. Exactly. So it's a completely abstract concept to the rest of the students. But I was just thinking upon reading it this time, how deeply terrifying a moon is to this guy and how generous of a teacher he is to allow himself to be frightened so profoundly in that moment. And it tells you something about the sort of very real threat of... Voldemort, who's been gone for a decade plus at this point, that Lupin is willing to have a moon materialize, risking him turning into a a werewolf, but he's not willing to let Harry face the bogger because he doesn't want Voldemort to materialize in the staff room. Yeah. So as I was preparing for this episode, I was thinking about if I were face to face with a bogger, what it would be. Yeah. And I did the same thing when you guys were reading the Mirror of Erised chapter in season one and thinking, you know, if I looked into the mirror, what would I see? And it turns out to be a profoundly challenging exercise. Pick the one thing that you want most in the world or the one thing that frightens you most in the world. And it's interesting to me that each of those kids has a tangible, physical threat that they can visualize because for me... Maybe that would have been true when I was 14, but even if I could put my finger on it, to draw a picture and imagine what it would look like if if it materialized in front of me is very challenging. It's not a banshee. It's not a spider or whatever. Definitely not a mummy. Who's scared of mummies? Um, (laughs) But 
I agree. I mean, it's an abstract concept, right? It's like, well, I'm afraid of ostracizing all of the people who I love most in the world and dying alone. Like, it's global warming and climate change, right? Like, all of the things right. that I think I'm most deeply afraid of are more abstract, which I think it's interesting. I know that part of why Lupin probably steps in and doesn't let Hermione fight the Bogart is just to draw attention away from the fact that he didn't let Harry and sort of pad that. But I also wonder if, because Hermione is more mature than the rest of the students, if her fear wouldn't be something to physically materialize in that way. It's funny, I'd forgotten that he doesn't let Hermione do it either, but that sort of, not to get policy on you, but like that messes with her educational outcomes because she doesn't manage to defeat the Bogart in her final exam. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's right. She gets, she, gets, she gets undone. She does fine with the obstacle course until the very end and then she gets into the trunk and the Bogart is Professor McGonagall telling her that she failed all of her exams and she loses it right at the end. Oh, And maybe if God. Professor Lupin had not screwed with her learning process, she wouldn't have failed her finals. In order to most likely just protect the pride of a boy. Hmm. Well, no, no, no. But hang on, hang on. No, what? no. Let me hate him. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Oh, go is, ahead. It femi- is feminist rant o'clock? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or it's, you know, a time that Vanessa's eyes are open, either. <laughs> so, Chloe, in the episode, in your story, you told us a great story about how you interact with trolls. And I'm wondering, I swear I'm only asking this for 10% selfish reasons, but is laughing <laughs> at trolls, do you really recommend this as a strategy? I recommend it as one of several strategies. So I've been doing feminist writing in public about, you know, really heavy topics like body image and sexual violence and reproductive justice for almost 10 years now. And I started getting trolled from pretty much the very first time I put pen to paper in public. And it's something that I've thought about a lot. But Jessica Valenti, who co-founded the feminist blog where I got my start as a professional writer, She has some really interesting things to say in her recent memoir about the emotional toll of making fun of trolls, the sort of extra layer of performance required to convey to the world that you are an unintimidated woman who can't be bothered by these people no matter how many awful things they say about you. And she she acknowledges that that's a burden, that's an extra level of emotional labor that certain women in in the public sphere have to do or may choose to do and she says you know at a certain point it just becomes exhausting and you can't do it anymore and people might have listened to the Lindy West troll episode of This American Life where she calls up someone who trolls her in in a really really awful way and explains to him the devastating emotional impact that he had on her And she's very insistent about having a human response to people treating you inhumanely, that it's not feeding the trolls, it's feeding yourself to acknowledge that they haven't changed you, they haven't coarsened you, they haven't hardened you, you are still the squishy human person that you were before they said mean things about you, that you don't feel the need to either perform an I don't care performance or even genuinely not care, that you get to be yourself and living well is the best revenge. But I always come back to the the Margaret Atwood quote, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Yeah. What's so interesting, you know, there's the cliche of humor is tragedy plus time. 
Mm-hmm. But I do think there's something about laughing during a tragic situation. But it's not about laughing at the tragic situation, right? You know, you hear about laughing during funerals. And I feel like often cracking a joke can also be a sign to the people around you that life is going to go on. Even though we're in this tragic situation, there is still levity. There are still jokes. Well, I guess this is a question for you. Do you think that there are situations that are so despondent that laughter is absolutely just an unacceptable response, that there is no humor to be found in that room. Almost certainly. For me, the more interesting question is, what is the target of the joke? Right. What are you laughing at? I mean, this is this is sort of the debate that goes around and around about rape jokes. Is it okay to make jokes about that? And to me, that's not the interesting question. The interesting question is, what are you laughing at when you make a joke about that dead serious subject? Does the premise of the joke that sexual assault is not that bad? Or is the premise of the joke that it's terrible and we should mock the people who do it or who facilitate it? So for me, a joke that punches up, if you think of, you know, oppression as a, as a matrix or a hierarchy, a joke that punches up at people who have more power rather than punching down at people who have less of it, that is usually an ethical joke, even if it's about a very, very grim subject. Um, so I think one of my favorite Onion headlines ever is raped environment led developer on, attorney argues. <laughs> so not only is that, you know, wordplay about how we treat the environment, but it's also it's laughing at the people who would tell us that some people deserve to be raped or some environments deserve to be raped. Right. Those are the people that we're mocking, not the victim of a violent crime. Yeah. And, you know, just having done some, I mean, very little, but some chaplaincy in a chemo ward, chemo wards are places where people laugh at cancer a lot. And Mm -hmm. there's just a ton Mm -hmm. of laughter. There's a ton of levity and and what a joy, like what a great way to sort of, you know, take power back in a dire situation is to, I mean, laugh in a chemo ward. Right. There's like no greater way to shake your fist at cancer. And for me, this is part of what it means to be culturally Jewish is for a long time, this has been my people's, such as they are, my my people's response to a consistently tragic history. The response has been to make jokes. I sort of feel like it's it's part of my birthright almost, not in a free trip to Israel kind of way. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it almost feels like part of your duty, right? It's like if Jews have laughed in the face of pogroms, then I need to laugh in the face of, at least for me. Sorry, I won't speak for you. (laughs) There's this one joke that I always want to make on Twitter, but I I never have the courage to because I'm afraid of how it'll be misinterpreted without like a tone. But uh, I once said to a friend of mine, you know, the second most Jewish thing about me is that I make jokes about tragedies. And the most Jewish thing about me is that a bunch of my family was wiped out in the Holocaust. (laughs) (laughs) Chloe, thank you so much for being here with us today and for making us laugh in the humor episode. Now you have to thank me. Oh, I have to. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm such a fan of the podcast and uh, listening to it and becoming friends with Vanessa is one of the best things that's happened to me in the last couple of years. So thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, 
You can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.